0: The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. All of you on the good on earth. One small trip for man, one giant
1: leap.
2: Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. No, you are not hallucinating. This is Sawyer Rosenstein. I am back, and also with us tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
3: Welcome back, Sawyer. Glad to have you back at the uh, the infamous Attila the Hun chair. Thank you. It's good to be back, and welcome as well, Mark
1: Ratterman. And just for a note, everybody notice I'm not the troublemaker tonight. It's it's these other two guys.
2: <laughs> right, right. Well, for those of you that didn't know, I was in the hospital for a short while, but now I have left the gravitational pull of the hospital and am preparing for trans-healthy injection. Yeah, that was terrible. I'm back. (laughs) So let's kick things off with the next space shuttle mission, STS-134, the final flight of the space shuttle Endeavour. And I know, Mark, you've been down at the Kennedy Space Center a lot recently, covering this mission, including the terminal countdown test and a couple of other events. So could you fill us in a little bit about what's going on with STS-134?
1: Yeah, let me say, uh, to say the least, we're in April now, but uh, March was definitely an interesting month. Uh, Starting out with the rollout of Endeavor on March 10th, and uh, then on the 22nd I was back for a... uh, trip out to the launch pad to talk to some payload managers for 134 and uh, actually got to see the payload canister up on the rotating service structure, uh, which I think later that day and the next day, they would be transferring the payload to Endeavor's payload bay. Um, And that was quite interesting, especially hearing uh, Joe Delai. He's one of uh, NASA's folks that uh, is, is integral to to 134's uh, payload, he's our payload mission manager, and one of the things I picked up from talking to Joe and the other gentlemen that were there is that these managers are excited. They are genuinely excited when you say AMS, or when they, when AMS comes up in the course of a briefing or questions, their eyes open up and. They are flat-out excited about this. This isn't just a, well, we've got 10 10 payloads on the mission, plus a a number of other things on the mid-deck, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, They're really excited about AMS being part of this flight. And just as a uh, a quick mention, uh, the fact that Endeavour is flying as STS-134 is something that was not on the manifest just a few years ago, and it was something that was supported by uh, Congress, and and it got approval from them and funding from them, and uh, that of course is due to AMS. So so thanks to the United States government for for spending the money on something we world changing uh, significance. But anyway, back to uh, the rest of it. It was a great day out at the pad back uh, back on March 22nd. Unfortunately, that didn't hold through quite as well during the TCDT week. Uh, I guess weather has uh, been a topic of discussion that week?
3: Yeah, you could say that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it got my attention on on uh, March 31st. The, the I showed up at 6 o'clock in the morning for the trip out to the pad to interview the crew, which is same place I was at for STS 133 on their TCDT, which was back in September of last year. Well, you know, you're looking at the skies, and you're seeing the the clouds that that are not 100%, but it's like, you know, it's really a cloudy sky. It looks like the weather's changing. And uh, I was outside the press site, and I hear a plane, which, sorry, I'm FAA guy. I hear airplanes. I'm still a, a kid in some part of me, and I look up to see, what is it? What's he doing? And here is the uh, shuttle training aircraft uh in a circle over the press site around the VAB lining up for landing on runway i believe it's three i had to be able to do this three three i think
2: yeah it's three three
1: and uh he was below the clouds and i thought huh i wonder if he's doing an approach and it didn't occur to me that you know flying a uh, a close-in circling approach with the gear down was probably not a training configuration And it wasn't. And we found out uh, just a short while later that the uh, the crew interviews was not going to be held at the pad. And at that point, they were under a trying to remember the terminology. They use a uh, a phase one lightning uh, alert. And when it goes to phase two, uh, you know, other actions go into place. But basically, uh, the. The crew interviews out at the pad were scrubbed, I think, from the start and were brought inside to the auditorium, which was good because there were actually a few lightning strikes that were close enough and loud enough for us to hear inside that uh, I I think Allard Butel, the news chief, commented that uh, he didn't remember doing a uh, conference there before when they'd had weather, you know, really blasting outside. Um, But anyway, to summarize the weather, it was horrible that day. There was tornado warnings. There was sirens going off. Uh, they made announcements to people in the in the news center that, uh, you know, there's a tornado warning. You should uh, possibly seek shelter. Keep your eyes open. You know, be ready to, to duck and cover or whatever. And uh, as it turned out, we had no immediate danger there. But when you look at the map of of damage from, from this weather on uh, last day of March, it was a big deal. Uh, looking at some of the news for the area, uh, there were thousands of people who were out of power. In fact, I heard, uh, I believe it was Thursday morning, might have been Friday morning, heard one of the press on on local TV news saying, "Yeah, it kind of reminded me of when Hurricane Charlie came through, how dark everything was and how still it was. Wow. And So there were significant areas that were power was knocked out uh, west of West of Kennedy Space Center at Lakeland. There's a big uh, experimental aircraft association fly in called Sun and Fun. They had 40 airplanes flipped, uh, a big tent structure collapsed, sent six people to the hospital. Um, Tractor trailers flipped over on the highway. It was a very big deal. And from what I heard, there was a lightning strike, at least one that was in the vicinity of the pad, maybe half a mile away. And it necessitated uh, a change in plans because the the crew had activities that they were going to do Thursday that got shuffled around. So I suspect the whole week was an exercise in in, in rearranging your schedule. Uh, in fact, backing up just a teeny bit on Tuesday, the 29th was when the crew was scheduled to arrive at 7 p.m. Well, doggone if they didn't show up uh almost two hours early at just a few minutes after five local time. And so, you know, I didn't get to talk to anybody. I didn't go that day because it's such a short event and I have to mind my P's and Q's and occasionally go to work myself and not uh, and and I do miss stuff at KSC. But, you know, they they flew in early. Um, And of course, there was some some video on YouTube that you can that you can look for. Um, I got to just say one thing that really impresses me about the opportunities where I've been around any of these astronauts. The 133 crew is the first one that I've been up close to. The 134 crew is that when you see them up close, you realize that, that these are, are men and women and that they are incredibly sharp at what they do. They have a confidence. They have a an attitude about them that... Uh, it really is impressive. I mean, these are the best of the best. And um, anyway, enough of that. What else have I got to talk about since I've lost track?
3: Just real, just real quick too. Um, there, there was one photograph that was uh, taken out at uh, Kennedy Space Center. It was a NASA photograph. It's, I think it's somewhere on the NASA website if you look it up. It shows the Vehicle Assembly Building in that 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 just in that weather. And it is stunning. The clouds, I've never seen scarier clouds than that. So if, if anybody wants to go ahead and take a look at that, it is on the NASA website. And I, I believe, Sawyer, you had mentioned that it made the Weather Channel website at some
2: point. Yeah, it was on the homepage of the Weather Channel that day. It was a, really an ominous photo.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it, if, if you want to get a good idea what the weather might have been like – um there you go. Hey Mark, there was uh, there was some reports too about uh, the uh, the external tank on Endeavour taking uh, some uh, some hail damage. Well, just just a, a tad bit of hail damage, but some inspections going on to make sure that everything is all ship shape with external tank number one twenty two. What have you heard about that?
1: Just a little bit, and that there was hail damage. It was uh, the initial reports were that it was minor. But even the uh, walk down of the pad and the inspections of the shuttle ended up being delayed. Um, You know, Friday morning, April 1st, was a beautiful, golly, drop-dead, gorgeous day. But that was the day that the crew had to finish up their exercises on the pad. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were supposed to have crew walk out at... um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Well, let me put it this way. T-Zero was going to be 11 a.m. on Friday, which would be the conclusion of their three-hour full-dress countdown out on the pad and the shuttle in their their pumpkin suits. Uh, That was going to be 11. It got switched to 2 o'clock, and so crew walkout ended up being at 1045. And, um, you know, all of those things that had to take place because they got to try and accommodate the crew and keep their flow going – the um, inspections at the pad, I'm sure, did start that day, but Saturday was going to be the big day where they were really going to give it a close look. And it'll, chances are, be um, shortly that we'll hear more about it. In fact, probably there'll be news out that'll, uh, that'll hit probably close to when we get this posted.
3: Okay, cool. Um, you were over at TCDT, um, or at least the, the, the press conference that would have occurred out uh, by the launch pad uh, for TCDT. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that? I know you've got some clips for us on that.
1: Yeah, sure do. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I I appreciate the the. <laughs> this is my first comment's going to be on the press. I appreciate the press, uh, but it, sometimes they're misguided. Good grief! Um, they specifically, Mike Mark Kelly specifically made a comment at the start. He says, "Here's." The situation with my wife, we're hoping that she can be here for launch. Uh, The doctors have, you know, they they have to decide whether it's okay for her to travel or not. And uh, we'll be letting you know about that as soon as you can. I would appreciate it if you would um, keep your questions on the mission. And if you have any questions uh, for me regarding my wife, I would like them to go through her office and be coordinated through there.
3: Um, just to let the public know, just for those of you who are not acquainted, uh, Mark Kelly is indeed married, married to uh, uh, Congressional Representative Gabrielle Giffords from Arizona. She unfortunately uh, suffered a bullet wound early in January. Um, so uh, go on. I was just saying that for, for folks who, who may not know.
1: <laughs> and, and I appreciate Mark Kelly's comments where he brought everyone up to date. This is where we are right now. And uh, the first question was, well, what about uh, a, a party for your guests? Is there going to be a party for your guests on, you know, the, uh, on launch day or the day before launch day? Uh, who's, are you handling those arrangements? It's traditional for the crew to, to handle a, a family get-together for their close family and friends yeah well okay so anyway we got on to some other good questions let you know leave it leave it be um, noted here that uh, there were some great questions from the press I had one that I just wanted to kind of bring from let's say out in left field it was something that interested me and uh, and so I asked my question and uh, ask it of drew foistel and this would probably be a good place to play mark ratterman with talking space a question for drew foistel um could you tell us a little about kurtek the children's cartoon favorite who's going to be making a flight on endeavor from the czech republic
0: yeah kurtek has uh, been a uh, is a small uh, animal animated character that's uh, been in the news recently and it's an item that uh, is flying uh Uh, Something that was selected uh, that's very popular in Europe and especially the Czech Republic Um, and and is a character that we hope has captured the imagination of the kids there. And and there's uh, been a science program and outreach program designed around Kirtek, And uh, we hope to to be able to, uh, you know, extend uh, the experience of space to uh, many of the kids there uh, in Europe and, uh, you know, try to do some outreach, uh, you know, highlighting science technology engineering mathematics to those kids and getting them excited so uh you know it's just one of these items that uh we help to be able to do some outreach with while we're uh, on the mission so a little
2: mole drew voice will be taking up that little mole from the czech republic huh
1: right yeah and it's funny my first awareness of this was a newspaper article that i i cut out and clipped so i wouldn't forget about it and the uh the headline is, Space Shuttle Stowaway is a Commie Mole. <laughs> now, I don't know about the <laughs> communist mole thing, and I watched one of the cartoons, and I'm hooked. I'm going to have to look at some more of them. You know, they got me for outreach and, uh, and STEM. It was called uh, Kertek and uh, the Robot, I think, was the name of it. And, well, it's, uh,
3: yeah, it's good to see uh, this type of mechanism being used um, for uh, for STEM outreach. And uh, I, I hope it's successful, uh, that it reaches enough uh, kids out there and, and gets gets them excited about uh, science and technology and possibly going into those areas as a, as a career field. So we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, the reason that, that Kyrtec is, is on Drew Feustel's uh, list of items that he's carrying uh, to orbit is that his mother-in-law is from the Czech Republic. And so he know- has – he has, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, he has connections with the Czech people, and and the the whole thing of what makes this significant to the, the people of Europe. Where here in the U.S. we've never heard of it, but uh, Kertek is quite a star over there. I did not know that. <laughs>
3: um, what other other questions of note, Mark, that were that were asked over there with reference to uh, any of the mission uh, or uh, or the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, for that matter? So that, I think, is a, is a great uh, – I, I can't wait to see this thing uh, get, a, get up there and, and start, uh, start taking data.
1: There was uh, – there were a lot of good questions. There was another one about uh, – a question that was asked by Todd Halverson from Florida Today, and, and he asked Mike Fink, or Mike Fink ended up answering it, I guess, uh, about what it was – wondering what it was like to work for Mark Kelly. And so we have a clip on that that we'll roll now.
3: I've been uh, associated with uh, Mark since uh, uh, 1996. We we're all the same classmates, and uh, I haven't had a chance to walk in Mark's shoes exactly, but like his brother, I was commander of the International Space Station, and I appreciate
0: what it, all the hard work and all the thankless jobs you get sometimes being a commander. And then you had, uh, you know, a, a particularly difficult family situation, and I'd just like to you know, say that Mark's been doing an outstanding job. He's been providing great leadership to our crew and uh, giving us what we need so that we can do our job. And I'd like to compliment
3: our crewmates uh, for being there for, for Mark because we're, we're a team, we're a family, and uh, from what we've seen so far, I don't think there's anything out there that we can't handle
0: when we work together as well as we do. When we have our game on, this is an amazing crew.
1: And I walked away from, from hearing Mike Fink's answer, realizing that this crew really is together. I mean, they're 100% behind Mark Kelly and uh, and he's done an outstanding job for them as a commander and uh, that they really are behind him. And, and Mike Fink also complimented the crew. And, of course, that comment about uh, the crew having their game on at their, and how they could accomplish anything, that really struck me as being uh, you know, not just hot air, but that was something that they really felt. And they, they had that from their training and time together.
3: Just an observation too, Mark. When um, the crew arrived at the Kennedy Space Center for uh, for uh, uh, TCDT, there was the you know the customary photo op thereafter, and something I did notice: um, Kelly was sort of you know in the middle of the, the of the crew, kind of uh, you know as the commander I guess would be. But he did something really cool. He, he grabbed—I forget who the two astronauts that were next to him—but he grabbed their shoulders. And he kind of pulled them over together. It's like, come here, buddy, you know. And then he just held onto their shoulders as they took the photograph. So that really, really is a good indication on how cohesive of a unit that this particular crew really, really is. I thought that was that was kind of a neat, uh, neat moment there.
1: And they've become that way with an incredible variety of experience. I mean, you've got men that have flown multiple times on the shuttle. You've got men that have flown multiple times on Soyuz, but never on the shuttle. You've got people that have spent weeks in space. You've got Mike Fink that has spent over a year in space. He was a a commander of one of the expedition. I forget which number, but he was expedition something or other commander. Uh, He's got over a year in space. One of the other crew members has also been on a – Greg Shamitoff, I believe, was uh, on board the ISS for six months or so. And you've got Robert Vittori, who's also previously flown there from – he's an ESA astronaut. He's also flown there on Soyuz. And so you have got some breadth of skill and knowledge and ability that I think is going to uh, come in. in it'll, it'll be good to, to have that crew up there on the next to the last shuttle mission, at least next to the last as we see it. Hopefully it's not the last.
3: Yeah, um, Mike Fink has, has you know, probably you know, a really good breadth of experience up there. I mean, he, first off, I think on flight day 12, he becomes uh, the U.S. astronaut with the most experience, uh, or at least the most flight time up there. Um, I forget what the, the the amount of amount of time grand total will will be, but I think he'll actually exceed the the time that Shuttle Endeavor has actually been aloft, um, because he was also an ISS commander and he had some very complimentary things to say about Scott Kelly as well, who had just come back uh, from his from his. Uh, uh, you know time as uh, as as commander of the ISS and he realizes what you know the magnitude and the responsibility of that really really is so this crew is a very well seasoned group of n- group and a very very good team it, it's going to be very very interesting to see them all in action
1: and mark kelly and mike fink are uh, part of the astronaut class of 96 i believe it was
3: that's right so they're fellow classmates yep that's right
1: And one final little observation by me at the TCDT, Uh, part of the event that they make available to the press is to photograph crew walk out from the astronaut quarters as they walk out in their launch and entry suits to the Astrovan, just like they will on launch day. And uh, there weren't that many press folks there, a couple dozen, I guess. But uh, pretty quickly, the area accumulated uh, probably double that number of NASA employees that uh, came to see the crew come out and uh, get on the Astrovan, and it was exciting. Man, it really was exciting. And the funny thing was, Mark Kelly, they lined up in front of the Astrovan just like they do on launch day for photos. And, uh, you know, you hear him say, uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. And, uh, you know, this shutter's going off on the cameras, shutter's pictures being taken. And uh, then next thing he says, okay, well, we'll be back in a few hours. And, uh, you know, that just struck me as being so funny. You know, you're, you're picturing what you're going to see on launch day, but back in a few hours. We'll see you. Okay, well, that won't hold true on April the 19th, but uh, it, it was a, a nice moment. <laughs> and our last clip from the crew interviews was uh, actually a closing statement by Mark Kelly, and he's talking about AMS. And again, you know, to me, this just indicates how big of a deal this is and how how much focus the crew has on this particular device and its successful deployment
0: on board the ISS.
1: So let's roll our next clip.
0: pictures of, you know, not only our galaxy but the universe. And we can learn a lot from those images. But what AMS is going to do is going to te- teach us a lot about what... Uh, you know, what we're seeing in those pictures, what, what's the makeup of the cosmos? And, you know, as a crew being involved with this experiment, we're we're pretty excited about what the results are going to be. We were talking to Dr. Ting just yesterday at the pad, um, Professor Samuel Ting, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, who is the program manager for AMS, and he told us uh, just yesterday that within an hour of Greg and Greg attaching this to a space station, they're going to start having data. And they're going to collect data over the next 15 or 20 years. And AMS could be teaching us uh, things about the universe that are completely unexpected. Um, So we'll see what, uh, you know, what it it can tell us, but we're certainly uh, very excited about the prospects uh, for that science so again thanks for coming uh, we'll finish uh, TCDT tomorrow and head back to Houston early afternoon Thank you
3: and indeed uh, the alpha magnetic spectrometer to me personally is a, is a, a fascinating experiment I'm going to be I've been uh, doing some some homework on the experiment and uh, uh, we're have planning a uh, special alpha magnetic spectrometer profile uh, that uh, Mark, I hope uh, you're going to be part of, and uh, we do have a special guest also that will be a part of that as well, and uh, uh, we'll we'll go on from there. But um, again, I I've, I'm I'm really really excited about this particular uh, this particular project. Uh, every time I hear uh, Dr. Samuel Ting. Uh, talk about it. I heard him on uh, the 24th uh, during the the STS-134 uh, press briefings. And uh, the more and more I hear about it, the more and more I'm I'm really really excited about this thing.
1: Oh, I am too, Gene. Trust me. On uh, March 22nd at the payload event, I I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but uh, we got to go in the space station processing facility, and I was 20 feet from AMS-2.
3: Oh, I'm so and I, jealous.
1: <laughs> and I was shoulder to shoulder with Dr. Tang and got my picture taken oh, with him.
3: I'm so. And, je- oh, uh, you, uh, you got to post that mark. <laughs> excuse me. You've got to post that mark.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, Sawyer. Sorry, this was when you were uh, you were coming out of your or in the middle of your hospital period. There, I, I made a trip to uh, KSC and it was for payload briefing. And we had a one-hour briefing by the, the payload managers, and a significant part of that was a, a, uh, a briefing by Professor Ting telling us about AMS-2, telling us about particle physics, and it, really it was a primer for the layman to uh, to get a grasp of what it's all about. And afterwards, we were up on the third floor of the Space Station Processing Facility. You know, the second hour, we were down on the floor, and we were right out there with AMS-2. Uh,
2: how she look?
1: Uh, the, the ELC carrier that's taking the rest of the payloads up was right next to it. Uh, I saw some of the multi-purpose logistic modules that are that are still there. I think uh, there's two that that they still have uh, in the SSPF, and uh, one of them is planned to go up on Atlantis, I think. And uh, but we were walking right down the aisle next to that stuff that I've seen on their on their uh, webcam that they have for the facility, and uh, woohoo! Yeah. yeah, I'm excited.
2: Got to tell me how did she look in person? Like, how's the size comparison of AMS two? You know, something that the listeners might be able to compare it to.
1: It's big. <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you this little tidbit. Uh, AMS in its mounting cradle does not point straight up. Okay. It has a, I believe it's an eleven degree tilt. The reason for that is so it'll fit in the payload bay. Wow. The other reason for that has to do with science that we'll talk about on our special show, and where it's uh, deployed on the ISS.
3: Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Mark, the thing weighs about fifteen thousand three hundred pounds. I believe <laughs> uh, that was uh, Kirk Sharman saying that at one of the briefings on the on the 24th. Kirk Sharman being the uh, uh, the uh, one of the ISS project managers. So. Um, uh, you, this thing is just just going to be amazing, and it's going to do a lot for particle physics. And I can't wait to to get that thing up and running. I really can't. And Mark, you got to post those pictures. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> you have to share those pictures uh, with this man.
1: Uh, maybe, maybe we'll <laughs> see.
2: <laughs> All right. So keep your ear out for a special alpha magnetic spectrometer show coming up shortly. And in the meantime, as our shows progress, we will keep you up to date on STS-134 and her progress. Speaking of which, we already have an update on the STS-134 mission. It has been delayed to April 29th due to a scheduling conflict with a Russian Progress vehicle. We will have more on this delay on next week's show with some clips and some more reasoning behind the reason of the delay. Now let's continue along to an event that happened a couple of weeks ago, and that was the successful orbital insertion of the first spacecraft to circle around Mercury. And that was Messenger. And they said it was going to be a couple of weeks before they sent back their first images. And here we are finally, 360-something images later. Messenger is working
3: yeah uh it uh, I believe the spacecraft took about three hundred and sixty three uh photographs uh in total before sending images back you know, before uh sending the images back over to earth uh more are going to uh be released uh, even further. Um, and NASA held a, a news conference, I believe to uh, go over the photographs and what they saw and they are quite indeed happy with the imagery returned these The photographs that were were sent back were basically uh, you know just sort of uh you know the the commissioning photographs to make sure that uh, messenger can do what what as as advertised and uh, everybody seems to be very very pleased with uh with the photographs. In fact, um, one of the, the principal investigators, Sean Solomon, um, and I'm quoting the Los Angeles Times from uh, uh, March 30th here, um, in an email had said about the first image, quote, it's early to speak about the it's too early to speak about the geological details but we will be poring over these details for, for some time. Um, Uh, Basically, uh, Solomon later said that the entire MESSENGER team is thrilled that the spacecraft and the instrument checkout has been proceeding according to plan. So it looks like MESSENGER is working as advertised and uh, will be able to go ahead and answer a few questions about uh, uh, the sun's nearest neighbor, the planet Mercury. And uh, this is the very first spacecraft that will go ahead and uh, image Mercury. I believe there's another European spacecraft that's going to be tagging along in in, in, uh, in about a year or so, but uh, Messenger so far is it. Um, I believe Messenger's got a little bit more capability than the uh, than the European spacecraft. So for certain certain things, Messenger is going to be it. Um, uh, Messenger is going to be answering one of the the questions uh, on Mercury. That is, does this place really really have water? It's the same type of situation on the moon, where you, on the uh, uh, lunar south pole, where you have um, you know that large uh, impact basin over there, and uh, uh, you've got the possible. You know, we've I believe LRO and cross said, hey, yeah, there's water there. Uh, so does the same thing exist for Mercury too? So uh, some people think it is. So you know, stay tuned.
2: And stay tuned, we will. So uh, we'll keep track on Mercury. Now let's continue along to something a little bit more private, and by that we mean privatized space, and we're going to go to SpaceX, who this Tuesday, which would be April 5th, will be making a big announcement, and uh, Gene, what do we believe this announcement will be?
3: Well, SpaceX, we think, is going to announce a, um, a heavy lift booster of some sort, but uh, I don't know if it's whether it's they're officially saying, "Hey, the Falcon 9 Heavy is here," or or, or what. But um, uh, they're we're thinking that maybe the new booster that they might announce will be, you know, have more of a wallop. That it will have uh, the same kind of uh, lifting capacity, or maybe more lifting capacity um, uh, than. Uh, United's Launch Alliance's Atlas V or uh, the Delta IV rockets that are currently being used right now. I think, too, um, this is very interestingly timed because right now um, there's a, a bit of controversy up on, the, on Capitol Hill right now over the congressional uh, mandated uh, heavy lift. Vehicle that uh, Congress has said uh, NASA should build and should build by 2016. In fact, they keep on reminding General Bolden um, that this is uh, the law. Uh, NASA, well, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden is is kind of sort of saying, okay, but you know, you're not going ahead and giving us enough money to go ahead and complete this this particular job. And uh, the response from Congress is saying, no, this is all the money you're going to get. You're going to do the job with the money we give you and too bad you've got until December 31st 2016 to get this thing going um the Obama administration is also uh, sort of resisting um, the uh, the congressionally mandated uh, vehicle as well and I think um, I'll quote uh, a Space News article here from April 4th from April 4th from April 1st I'm sorry um uh, it's reporting that uh, The White House science advisor, John Holdren, and uh, also uh, NASA Administrator Charles Bolden indicated that, quote, the Obama administration officials continue to push back against a congressionally directed heavy lift launch vehicle that would salvage elements from the Constellation program, uh, the program that the president is trying to basically dismantle. Um, So I don't know if this is SpaceX saying – to uh, to the, to NASA or to even to uh, to the folks at Capitol Hill, you know, in your face, we can do it better, um, or or what? But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what this Tuesday announcement is. It may, you know, by the time this this gets uh, broadcasted, it'll, uh, the the Tuesday announcement would be made, and we'll probably make some comment about it next week. But uh, uh, it should be very interesting to see what uh, Elon Musk has up his sleeve and what impact it is going to have on the uh, on the heavy lift vehicle uh, that's proposed, and uh, to see if, they, if people think that this thing is redundant or not.
2: And by the way, just so you know, if it is what we all think it is, according to Discovery News, the advertised price ninety five million dollars.
3: Uh, caveat emptor. I mean, I'm not going to belittle SpaceX, they've done a very good job thus far. Um, but, uh, you know, again, y- y- you want to make sure that you, you know, it, those of us in business know the, the this particular saying, you know, under promise over deliver. Is SpaceX doing the opposite right now? We will see. Um, We'll just have to see if, if that's what they're they're really really aiming at. That's harsh. You, well, <laughs> that's just you know. Hey, I mean that that that's the facts here. I mean they, they were saying that uh, um, uh, you know we can we can go ahead and start sending humans up up into uh, to uh, the International Space Station and uh, here last week uh, Frank Mooring indicated. Uh, from Aviation Week, indicated that, uh, and these are SpaceX's numbers, that it will take 17 more Dragon launches before they are really, really confident that they could even attempt to send a human up there. So that's not that's not you know NASA's numbers. That's not um, any independent study numbers. Those are SpaceX's numbers. So you know. I, I, we'll have to just see what happens I'm again you know, I, I'm one of these people that, that is, is sort of um, watching this commercial thing very very closely and I'm saying is it going to work? Who knows can they get cargo up? probably um, you know, the, the, I mean the dragon uh, test last, uh, last year was an unqualified success but um, can they get? Can we start getting crew up there? You know, we'll have to see. Um, the good news is that folks like uh, former, you know, former astronaut Garrett Reisman just recently joined SpaceX. A few other uh, former NASA astronauts are over there, so they kind of understand the drill. Um, I'm just hoping that uh, that knowledge that they have. Of the shuttle program and so on trickles down to uh, to the engineering table and things are are designed in the right way. Uh, well, do, again, I'm I'm not I'm not saying you know the things are going to blow up on the pad. I'm saying give it, let's give it a shot. But by the same token too, don't bite off more than you can chew. And unfortunately, that's what I'm seeing with this. Don't bite off more than you can chew. And they may be doing that. I don't know. We'll have to see.
2: Exactly. Let's continue along then. (laughs) So our next story, we are going to head to another planet and uh, we've already hit Mercury. We've hit the Earth. We've hit Earth orbit. We haven't hit Mars yet and that's where we're heading next. And we're going to visit our favorite little rover, Spirit, who at this time has still yet to communicate with Earth. Scott Maxwell, I would imagine, who was one of the Drivers, so to say, of the rovers who we've had on Talking Space before, would probably not be too happy right now. Am I correct?
3: Yeah. Um, the uh, from what I'm I'm reading here, and I'm quoting a, a report by the Associated Press from uh, uh, March 29th, uh, saying that quote the prospect of ever hearing from the stuck Mars rover Spirit is fading after it failed to respond respond to repeated calls from Earth. Um, it's kind of dismal. Uh, in all honesty, the outlook is not really good. Um, they're still going to try to reach Spirit for the next month or so according to the report, but uh, the program manager, uh, John Callis, believes um, uh, that something and, – and I'm quoting him – is, quote, seriously wrong, close quote, if Spirit has not – you know, phoned home basically by now, um, and he believes at some point um, NASA is just going to have to declare Spirit uh, lost if we do not hear from her soon. Um, so we'll have to, uh, we'll just have to wait and see, and uh, and see if uh, you know Spirit is just sort of being uh, saying, "Yeah, I'll get a job tomorrow, ma," and then you know just kind of wake up and say, "Okay, you know, now what do you want me to do?" Or if, indeed, she's she's gone permanently to sleep, I'm kind of sort of thinking it's the latter. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of sad. Spirit has had a, a good – but she, she leaves a good legacy behind. And uh, uh, her big sister, the uh, uh, rover Curiosity, is going to uh, be over there the uh, uh, quite shortly. Uh, I believe uh, Curiosity launches um, – Somebody help me here. I know it's sometime in December of this year, and uh, we'll be on the on the Red Planet uh, not too long after that. So, um, if uh, Spirit uh, has a legacy, the 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 Mars Rover Curiosity sure is it.
1: Yeah, I would tend to say that uh, Spirit is uh, is gone. It's you know permanently quiet. you know, this equipment can't tolerate everything indefinitely. And uh, they did say that, that where it was stuck, that they were unable to get it oriented to the a, per, a point where it would get, you know, the maximum benefit from its solar arrays. And so it's quite likely that with all of those things going against it, that uh, it couldn't keep warm during the wintertime and components froze, uh, horrendously cold, badly froze, not just you know, New York blizzards of 2010, but, you know, really, really bad news cold, and I think it's gone.
3: And yeah, um, again, Mark, I have to agree with you there, but again, the Mars Science Laboratory, or the rover, as it's known as the rover Curiosity, is, is you know, not too far away from launch, so, uh, you know, we'll just have to... Um, again again uh, uh, we'll just have to see uh see what the future holds uh for spirit but i don't think uh we're we're not uh, i don't think uh, spirit is going to be uh going to be there i'll be honest with you
2: i do hope she pulls through <laughs> at
3: least we have one optimist on the team
2: <laughs> yeah i'm saying i, I hope I, i'm not saying that she will but i'm i'm hoping yeah. usually that's mark's position <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I flip flop around. I'm I'm optimistic, optimistically pessimistic.
2: <laughs> and I'm gonna go pessimistically optimistic. So there we go. I
1: don't know who's gonna win this one.
2: <laughs> I have a feeling Gene, because he just says it's not gonna work.
3: She, uh, Spirit Esther stoppen. That's it. I think she's she's gone. But
2: uh... and I don't speak German, so I'm just gonna continue along. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, we got him, Gene. All we got to do is throw foreign words at him that he hasn't, uh, we haven't used before, and we've, uh, we've got him in the war of the words.
3: <laughs> I get a pressure I'm brush not on my Russian.
1: I'm <laughs> not playing, am not playing Scrabble with you, though Sawyer. I saw the score that you had playing with uh, your family, and uh-uh, no, I'll just
2: watch. <laughs> okay, I think we're getting a little off topic here. I think let's get back on the hole. road. <laughs> and down we go (laughs) yeah this is sinking fast so let's uh let's blow some air into it raise this back up a little bit continuing along now if possible (laughs) is the retirement of bert rutan and gene could you profile bert rutan for the listeners who might not know what a spectacular career he's had
3: yeah thanks sawyer um Bert Rutan uh, is literally a, a, a giant. Somebody, Some folks actually call him a, a maverick uh, aeronautical engineer, but uh, uh, he announced on uh, uh, April 1st that he plans to get a, out of the limelight for forever. Um, this was reported by the Los Angeles Times, and uh, since it was on April Fool's Day, I thought it was a joke when I first saw it, and indeed it is not. Uh, Rutan is responsible for for a lot of things in career in his career, uh, most notably Spaceship One, which uh, was the, uh, the first privately owned uh, craft to go ahead and, and enter what is what is called called uh, called space. Um, he's also the designer of the uh, the carrier aircraft, the White Knight. Uh, he he is now he's partnered with uh, Virgin uh, Galactic to go ahead and. And uh, have a, a whole fleet of these things to go ahead and, and do uh, sort of 15-minute runs to, uh, uh, to suborbital flight, and eventually uh, Virgin Galactic will be doing that. Another uh, point in his career is that he designed the, uh, the Voyager aircraft, which is also hanging at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Uh, voyager was the uh the first aircraft to fly around the world unfueled or you know not having to land um so again on an illustrious career uh and he will be he's going to be remembered uh for for a very long time in uh in the uh the aviation and the spacecraft world and uh i hope he doesn't you know that he's just retired but i Um, you know, he, we've had uh, he's had some, uh, you know, headbutting a little bit with 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 NASA, but uh, he's also had some very complimentary things to say about them too. So again, uh, Bert Rutan, thank you uh, for all the hard work and uh, your all of your contributions. Thanks, thanks so much.
2: While we're on quick little stories, let's talk about another one. Where is the only website where you can go to? That if you go through the entire intro sequence, you get a breakdancing astronaut. That would be NASA's song contest. And that <laughs> is that, yes, it is no joke, there is a breakdancing astronaut on the website.
3: If oh, you go through the entire
2: man. intro, if you don't click skip intro, you'll see it. I, 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 I skipped the intro when I went in, in to vote. i, I got to look at it now. Basically, uh, what it is for STS-134 is that out of thousands of submissions of original songs... Ten have been selected for everybody around the world to vote on. The top two will be actually played for the crew of the Space Shuttle Endeavour on STS 134. So there are ten songs for you to go and listen to and vote for. And the website for that is https, there's the S there, colon slash slash songcontest.nasa.gov. And the link will be in the show notes
3: yeah there's some really good songs out there too i vo i 've already voted i 'm not going to say who I voted for uh until after the contest is over and no i'm not going to say I voted for the two winners uh so if if my my selections don't pan out i will I will admit to it but uh, uh again they've done some really good job i've i've heard all all ten of the the selections out there and uh, you know, uh, there were pretty good uh, there's some pretty good songs out there so it's going to be a tough decision
2: I've already got my favorites and uh, we'll see what happens
3: yipper so everybody go out there and, and get the vote out for the songs please
2: <laughs> alright and we're going to finish things off here with a little bit of a fun one saying that it's just the three guys tonight <laughs> so here's that, a question that, that. for everybody out there what does NASA and Victoria's Secret have in common? Huh? It's not what you think it is, you dirty, dirty people. <laughs> I, I,
3: I'm, I'm trying to put the two together, I I'm, I'm having a hard time with this. Do explain.
2: There's this man from Brooklyn. His name is Ted Southern. His job is actually a costume designer, and he also helps with affixing the wings to the Victoria's Secret models during their fashion shows, such as Heidi Klum and other models.
3: Uh, picture having that job, but go ahead.
2: <laughs> this is a hard story to get through. <laughs> go ahead. I'm trying here. He also has worked on Broadway shows and Hollywood movies, and when it comes to that, material has to be durable, yet at the same time wearable and flexible. And he thought... That he would also use his passion for science and space engineering with his current job to combine the two, and he helped design the gloves that will be used in future NASA spacesuits. There was huh. a whole there was a competition for a contract, and he won a hundred thousand dollars for it. And uh, he the win actually turned into a NASA contract and the launching of his own business now set in a studio actually in New York.
3: Wow. Well, hats off to him, but ah, from
2: humble beginnings, huh? I'm I'm just picturing, imagine having that job. Wow. As he <laughs> said, you need more flexibility and more torque, and he's talking about the gloves. I'm just I'm um, that that's wide open. I'm not touching that. Not on a bet. Nope. <laughs> not going there. <laughs> But he's working. He's also working on a full suit for commercial space travel too, on top of the gloves for NASA.
1: And seriously, now we've talked with astronauts here on the show, and they've told us what a difficult uh, time they have with their hands being literally uh, bruised and abused inside their gloves.
3: Not just the hands either, Mark. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was it was one of the crew members on STS-125 that was complaining about the shoulder. On the uh, the current EVA suit and said it was, yeah, you know, it was extraordinarily hard to move. In fact, he came out of there kind of bruised a little bit. I'm trying to remember who the heck that was. Um, the, it, it escapes me, but I remember indeed it was one of the members of the STS-125 crew that, that that had mentioned that. And uh,
2: so, if maybe this gentleman can solve that problem, just goes to show being someone's wingman can really help. Oh, <laughs> thank
3: you. Thank you. Have the 7
2: I'm back. Watch out. out. <laughs> That's the price you pay for inviting me back, guys. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should end this before it gets any further. <laughs> so I'd like to thank everybody for putting up with us and listening. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka.
3: Oh, it's been a fun night, Sawyer.
2: Welcome back, my friend thank you thank you as well Mark Ratterman
3: we're
1: not as bad as we sound
2: <laughs> <laughs> well uh, maybe I'm, I'm a little different but we'll, we'll I'll go with that oh yeah you are you are <laughs> 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 thank you Gina will be back with us soon so there will be some sanity on this podcast but in the meantime have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are